Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, back in the saddle, uh, a reminder that we are now at every other week, and that is because I'm starting graduate school to become a doctor of psychology and help solve the world's problems. But you can still get two additional exclusive episodes per month if you join the Patreon at patreon.com slash dancoke, or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. After today's main interview, I will be answering a listener question submitted through the patron-only Facebook group, sorry to keep bringing that up, from Matt. And that question is, what do you think of the whole hashtag empty the pews movement? I will explain that movement and give a response to that question. But first, before we get into this divine violence stuff, which I really love talking about, A note that's related to the last episode about the ordination of women. I was at this theopsych seminar at Fuller Seminary last week in Pasadena, California. You're going to hear a lot of episodes that will come out of that uh, in the coming months. But this one day, the psychologist Pete Hill was talking about gender differences in social, social psychology. He mentioned this giant meta study done by a psychologist looking at over 10,000 psychological studies that included gender as a variable. As you can imagine, if you're doing a study, it's pretty easy to include gender as a variable. It's fairly binary, so you can get interesting results. 
Um, of course, we know that there are biological differences between men and women, and there is a difference. For instance, one of these studies showed this, or some study has shown this, in the average distance that a 16-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl can throw a softball. Now, he didn't quote the study, but I did a little research online. Something like a boy can throw it 150 to 160 feet, a girl can throw it more like 110 feet, something like that. So there's a difference. Now, here's the crazy thing about the 10,000 studies. The largest difference between men and women on these psychological measures was one-third of the distance, the difference of the softball throwing in terms of the kind of complicated math that statistical studies use to measure, you know, effects and, and amounts. One-third. Most of the studies were more like one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of the difference that existed between the softball throwing distances. So here's an example. IQ. Women are on average about one to one and a half points higher than men. But that's just a very, very small difference. Now, why does this matter? The reason that it matters is that if you think that God intended men and women to do different things, for men to teach spiritually and women not to teach, for men to make decisions for their family and not women, you might think that you could find differences in the psychology of men and women that corresponded to that intention of God's dif- you know, differential roles. And you look and you don't see it. Now, of course, you might not say that. You might say that headship is a purely spiritual trait that exists in God's mind. It's God's intention for human beings, but it would never show up in any measurable way as a psychological difference between men and women. If you say that, though, that's a weaker claim, and you would really be resting solely on your interpretation of Scripture. And as Bonnie mentioned in the last episode, the history of the discussion of this topic has certainly included a lot of claims about empirical statements, abilities of men and women. So if you take that purely spiritual approach, you need to at least acknowledge that this is a newer position, and it is not, in fact, the same position that the church has held for the last 2,000 years. It's a modification of that position. Anyway, I just thought that might be of interest. I learned it last week, thought I would share it. On to today's topic, one of my personal favorites— Violence and God, especially in the Old Testament, and even more specifically with regard to the so-called Canaanite conquest narrative. It's silly to say this is one of my favorite topics because it's dark, but I just, I love the clarity that it brings to thinking about the Bible and thinking about God's character and how that relates to our theological systems, basically. Some people call it the Canaanite genocide narrative. Uh, And as we will hear, I think that's a pretty accurate term for what the text actually narrates. My guest today is Dr. Eric Seibert, professor of Old Testament at Messiah College. His main areas of research are pretty much what we're talking about today, Old Testament violence, and also looking more closely at biblical passages that promote peace and nonviolence. There aren't as many of them as you might hope, but there are some. What we're going to do today is, first of all, set the stage talk about the conquest itself as it is presented in the text, go through uh, a, a bunch of particular passages that relate to sort of the morally problematic aspects of this stuff. 
Then we're going to go through basically bullet points from this incredible article that Eric wrote in 2016 and sent to me, where he basically summarized 14 different ways that Christian thinkers and biblical scholars have dealt with the problem of divine violence. And then, of course, in the process, we'll get Eric's view, we'll get my view, which he helps me kind of tease out. And we're going to touch on some relevant related topics such as biblical inerrancy and latitude of biblical interpretation and how those affect which of these approaches will be available to us as we try and deal with this really tough problem. So that's enough. Let's get into it. Dr. Seibert, thank you so much for being willing to do this kind of marathon conversation with me today. I imagine you've maybe had people send you some questions before that they want to ask you, and it's never been this long of a list. Is that true? Uh, well, uh, if we talk for two hours or an hour, 40 minutes, whatever it comes out to, that will be a long conversation. Yeah, most questions don't go quite that long, but I'm really cl- glad to be here. It's a really important topic, so happy yeah. to do it. Well, I appreciate that, and, and I appreciate it, especially because in my own story, the issue of the Canaanite conquest or the Israelite conquest or the Canaanite genocide, depending on what terminology you use, and we'll get, we'll probably talk about those terms, really was for me the kind of primary inciting incident of my own faith deconstruction. To use Derrida's language, it was the thread that I yanked on that unraveled the sweater. Uh, people have all kinds of different threads. That was mine. I don't really know why this was the one. It might just have been the right time. But really, it was the issue that forced me personally to think about how to read the Bible and how to think about God You know, how much do my intuitions about God's goodness matter? What are the options with the text? Is my case an outlier, or do you find the Canaanite conquest to be a common uh, sort of instigator for faith changes and, and transitions? I do think it's one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to come to grips with. And I don't, I don't, I don't think yours is an outlier. I think a lot of people, when they actually read it and see what it says, struggle with it. Uh, for some people, it's an obstacle to even come to faith in, in the first place. If they, they sort of say, you know, hey, if God's like that, then I don't want anything to do with that kind of a God. Uh, and for other people who are already within the faith, they may have heard the story of, you know, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, but they haven't really thought about the implications of what that actually means. And when they actually see it, it can be very, very disturbing and very troubling. Something that's going to be lurking kind of in the background of this conversation that we're not going to hit head on, this is not the the point of this conversation, is really one's view of the text. For instance, how much leeway does a Christian have in interpreting the Bible? Or can the Bible get God wrong in any meaningful sense in terms of once we understand the narrative, once we understand what the author intended to say, can that ever be saying anything wrong about God? Or will the author, the author's intention always speak truly about God? Uh, obviously, we can't answer all of that right now, but what do you think is important to keep in mind along those lines as we proceed with this conversation? I think you're right that that, that question is always in the background. Sometimes it's even in the foreground. Um, it, we tend to kind of come back to it. And I think if people have a certain view of Scripture in which Scripture always speaks um, accurately about God, then there's going to be certain kinds of options that will be more attractive to them in terms of how they wrestle with the 
you know, the moral moral difficulties they find in a passage like Joshua 6 through 11. I think if folks are willing to say, no, you know, sometimes the text might not get God exactly right. It might reflect more of Israel's, you know, cultural historical context. And there's some other kinds of options that they may be more open to pursuing. But I do think kind of where you enter the conversation to, to a fairly large degree will determine what possibilities you have for wrestling with the difficulties you find there. I'm just curious, autobiographically, in your own case, I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Some people, I think they tend to find more solace and more help in kind of modern historical criticism, maybe some more liberal theological takes starting in the 19th century. Other people tend to find more solace in the church fathers. They look at the way that Irenaeus and Origen and Augustine read the text and and the sort of interpretive uh, options that that affords them. I'm wondering if for you personally, which of those two different alternative ways than it's the plain text, it's what the author intended that has to be right. Uh, have you found more helpful or more freeing? Yeah, I tend to find the the historical critical approach is much more useful for me in terms of grappling with the text. I mean, I know there are some people who find what the early church fathers did, more allegorical or symbolic kinds of approaches, really, really useful. Um, they're, they're not quite as helpful for me personally, um, so I tend to gravitate more towards some more modern kinds of approaches to dealing with the text. I mean, having saying that, recognizing that the, that the problem or the issue itself stretches back, you know, the last couple thousand years. So it's not not just a modern problem, but I think some of the tools we have now can be really helpful. Yeah, I would put myself in that camp as well. So we're talking about the Canaanite conquest today, but your work is not just on that issue. Your work is actually bro- more broadly about problematic violence, especially in the Old Testament. And even though we're focusing on this one thing, I just thought it would be great to kind of situate it in the larger context. Can you run briefly through other examples of this kind of violence that your work ends up touching on that other people might find is their problematic moment, not necessarily the Canaanites, but sort of uh, what's the what's the lay of the land in which this is one discrete option among many? Sure. I mean, there are lots of passages that we could talk about or touch on. I think the flood narrative at the very beginning of Genesis for some folks is really troubling because you have basically all animal life and all human life saved for eight people um, exterminated. Um, a little further on in Genesis, you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got cities that are kind of completely destroyed again, save for Lot, his two daughters, and his wife. And his wife doesn't make it too long after she exits the city. Right. So you've got that one. You've got you know Exodus 12, the sl- slaughter of all the firstborn um, Egyptians after the you know as part of the tenth plague, and that again is very troubling because it's, it's the whole range from the palace down to the dungeon. It says, and you know, so everyone in between. Or something like even the, Amal- the, anni- the annihilation of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, where, again, it's very explicit that the Israelites are to wipe out you know, both you know, men and women and children. So it's just the whole, the whole range. And those, those kinds of texts t- where there seems to be this sort of indiscriminate slaughter can be very, very problematic. So I think we should start with the narratives themselves. So what I've done is I've found four short passages here that seem to kind of get at different aspects of this of this narrative. As you said, it's it's really in Joshua that you get the the straight narrative of what's going on. But there are also two passages in Deuteronomy and one in Numbers that are either kind of telling it from a different angle or are giving sort of the rules of engagement, right, for the Israelites. So I'm gonna read one I'm gonna read one at a time and then if you just have anything to add for a sort of narrative context or whatever, um, just to kind of, where do we place this? So 
The first two are from Deuteronomy. Here's the first one. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, that is the promised land, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivitites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. What do we need? To, what's the context for this uh, de- declaration from God? Yeah, so this one is um, ostensibly um, from the mouth of Moses. This is when the Israelites are just on the east side of the Jordan, just about to enter in. Moses is about to exit stage left here. He's about to die at the end of the book, and right. he will not be taking the folks into the promised land. So he's kind of giving some last instructions here as to how they're supposed to conduct themselves when they when they enter. So it's a fairly strong and clear call that their marching orders are, you know, they're not to take prisoners or not to um, make treaties or not to show any mercy, but everyone is to be to be exterminated. <laughs> full stop. <laughs> yep, full stop. There it is. Okay, this next yeah. one is um I find this one particularly problematic. This uh, uh this is before they get this is orders for before they get into the promised land. So this is Before they're supposed to kill everybody, this is what they are told to do. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Uh, there is some language in here that reads kind of kind and compassionate. You've dishonored her. You can't let her be a slave. But that would gloss over the fact that you basically get to just have sex with this either widowed or perhaps if she wasn't married, like, was under the protection of her dad who you just killed and you just get to bed her. And like, if you like her, she's your additional wife. Uh, but what else do we need to know about this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's problematic, particularly the fact that the, that the woman has no voice in the decision, right. you know? So she's simply at the mercy of those who have captured her, which is, I mean, just terribly troubling in all sorts of levels, because obviously if, it's, if it's, this is non-consensual sex, which presumably it would be, that's, we would call that rape. Um, so it's a very troubling passage from that aspect. It's it, In Deuteronomy 20, there are some rules for engagement. It talks about there's a difference between how Israelites can, um, how they deal with people who are within the promised land, which is the passage that you just read before, they're all to be exterminated, and how you deal with people who are outside the promised land. So this passage that you just read is actually talking more about how you would deal with folks outside the promised right. land. So if you're so if you're going to war and you're cap and you're taking captives there, you can you know again take captive uh, women and you can choose one of these women as your wife. So I think the, you know, the what the passage is trying to say is you know this person is to become a member of the community even though she's from another country, another culture. She is to become part of the community of Israel. So there's the children that you would have with this woman would also be full Israelites. Um, so in that sense, trying to raise her status. And again, if then for whatever reason that the husband doesn't want to keep her as a wife, he can you know send her away, um, but he can't sell her as a slave. So there's, again, a little bit of status that would go with that. She can't be re-enslaved. So those things may sound 
good, but it's all couched within a very problematic kind of um, arrangement to begin with. Yeah, I mean, you could imagine that just saying, if you find women who are still alive after war, set them free. <laughs> right. I mean, like, no, right, that's certainly right. an option, uh, yeah. rather than, well, take a go at them and see how it feels for you. And uh, then if it didn't work out well, you've actually dishonored them. Well, why have we dishonored them, Lord? Well, because you told us that we could. Or maybe even like, let's not go to war in the first place. Right, you right, know? right, so, right, right, right. <laughs> just to kind of back it up a step. That's true. At yeah. Rate. yeah. Now, this is Joshua 6, and this is uh, – I wanted to bring something from Jericho because Jericho is the story that people are sort of familiar with, the trumpet and the walls. But uh, this is the end of that story. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. Uh, any any context we should have here? So this, again, would be the first city um, that they encounter as they cross the Jordan, uh, the city of Jericho. Um, again, we tend to think about the story from the perspective of the Israelites, where we're thinking about, you know, God giving them the land, God clearing the land for them. We don't often, again, tend to think about what's happening to the folks inside the city, um, how they would how they would perceive this. So this is, you know, there's not a lot said about the battle itself. That's about all you get right there. Um, but it's it's the way it's worded seems to be, again, just full-scale uh, destruction of everyone inside the city. So it would have been a pretty terrifying um, event to uh, to experience if you sort of imagine this is uh, happening to people inside of the city with their defenses now all gone. Okay, last one. And this one I wanted to end with because, uh, I don't know, sometimes the way that I hear more kind of apologists talk about these passages is like, well— you know, maybe uh, God says it one way this time, but then he says this other thing over here, and maybe we should just sort of kind of um, blend these together and meet in the middle. Uh, I think this passage sort of precludes one from doing that. This is from Numbers 31. The Israelites took the women of Midian and their little ones captive, and they took all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods as booty. All their towns where they had settled and all their encampments they burned but they took all the spoil and all the booty, both people and animals. Skipping ahead a little bit, Moses said to them, have you allowed all the women to live? These women here on Balaam's advice made the Israelites act treacherously against the Lord in the affair of Peor so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man by sleeping with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man by sleeping with him, keep alive for yourselves. That's Moses straight up. Just like you guys did not kill them all like you were supposed to. And since you didn't, well, you can have the women as sex slaves, basically. Yes. I mean, <laughs> if you it's hard go not back, to laugh. It's a hard not bit. to laugh. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible when you think about what's being said here. But if you kind of go back a couple chapters into Numbers, Numbers 22 through 24 tells the story of Balaam, who is hired to curse Israel but blesses them instead. And then you get this, you know, chapter, chapter 25 in the book of Numbers, where you have an Israelite man um, who brings a Midianite woman into camp. Presumably they're having sex, and uh, Phineas uh, spears them through together, and 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 this plague that has started is is stopped. 
And so kind of the backstory there is that presumably on Balaam's advice, since he wasn't able to curse the Israelites as he had been paid to do, he sort of encourages them to engage in sexual morality, to engage in some idolatry. And so that's why the women who have had sex are targeted here in a certain okay. way where the young girls are not. So that's kind of the context, I think, for this particular passage. So there is a, some motivation for the distinction. It, it's not, yeah. uh, for instance, yes. 40 virgins in heaven virgins are better at the same time you still end up with the fact that basically the virgin women are to be kept for, for what the men would like to do with them yeah the, the idea i think the implication is that the virgin women are here were not implicated in this um causing israel to to, to stray so right. therefore they can their lives can be spared yeah well their lives can be spared but it, it doesn't just say set them free it says keep them for yourselves no, you're right. Yeah. No, you're right. So again, and there's also the- and then there's also the like, yeah, the, it's it, this kind of smacks of Eve gave, Eve ate the apple kind of uh, s- some some misogyny there as well. Like, oh, really, Moses? You think the reason that the men <laughs> engaged in all of this sexual immorality is because the women forced them to? Have you right. ever met any men before? Right, right, right. <laughs> yes. Good. No. Good point. <laughs> okay. So. Zooming out now, so we have a sense, and then uh, I guess we didn't read any of this stuff, but the final the final act of these passages is they go into the land, the promised land, and they do kill a bunch of people, right? I mean, they they don't quite do it exactly the way they're supposed to, but they, there's certainly a lot of death and destruction, and in fact, they're sort of reprimanded for not killing everybody the way they were supposed to, right? I mean, we should fill out the narrative a little bit here. Yeah, there. I mean, there are different versions of the story. So, I mean, within Joshua 6 through 11, just if you just look at that particular slice, I mean, you do get a summary statement near the end that seems to give you the impression that, in fact, they do wipe out everyone. The only exception, really, there would be, you know, Rahab and her family, and then the, they make a treaty with the Gibeonites. So there's a couple exceptions, I suppose. But there are other, I mean, then you flip the page at Joshua 13, and there's like all these people still living. You look at the book of Judges, there's lots of, it talks about they're not able to drive everyone out. So there are different versions of the story within the biblical text itself in terms of how Israel actually came to possess the land, uh, the promised land. Yeah, and this might come up during one of uh, the approaches that we're talking about uh, under, it's not as bad as it seems. But sometimes people mention that, hey, you look later in the text and they didn't actually do what they were going to do. Not to step on that section too much in advance, but isn't the problem more that God commanded it in the first place than that they actually did it? Right. I think that I think it's still problematic. Even if, even if you say, well, it wasn't, everyone wasn't killed, there was still a lot of, presumably a lot of killing that was done, and it was done at God's initiative. And that's this divinely sanctioned violence is what creates such problems for a lot of readers. Right. It's not like uh, we don't hold God to the standard we hold people. Um, God, it seems, ought to never command that a child be murdered. Not, not well, fewer children be murdered. <laughs> right, right. Right. Like we can, when we think about leaders in countries, we think, well, they had a tough decision to make and these people did die, but maybe these people were saved. Like theoretically, an all powerful God would not be subject to those kind of um, strictures. Yeah, I think it creates it creates real moral dilemmas if this is a God who is, you know, some would say, you know, morally praiseworthy, a God who is perfect, a God who is good. You know, how can the slaughter of babies and children ever be morally praiseworthy or good? So that that leads into my next question, which is there are a lot of different ways of thinking about why this violence is problematic. Can we go through those and talk about them a little bit? I mean, I have a few written down here as bullet points the violence itself, the psychological harm to the soldiers, the fact, the, the rape and property stuff, 
the ethnic cleansing and genocide stuff, and then God's character. We could talk through each of those, and if you have any more bullet points to add, I'd like to hear those as well. Sure. So, I mean, I think they're they're problematic in a number of different ways. So I'll just I'll mention a couple, and we can kind of circle back yeah. if you'd like to some of these. I mean, I do, I do think the theological problems are huge um, in terms of we as Christians believe certain ways about God, and then we read these texts that seem to, to counter what we've been taught in church and what we think the Bible says about God, and we don't quite know what to do with that. So it creates some real some real tension there. For some people, as we mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a faith kind of it comes a faith crisis. They're uh, they're Christians, and then now they see views of God that don't match their beliefs. They don't know what to do with that. Or for other people, they simply don't want to believe in the first place because the way God is portrayed. I think uh, it portrays violence positively, uh, which is I said, I've called this sort of virtu- in quotes virtuous violence, and I think that is is very difficult for people who want to teach Christian morals um, when you've got violence portrayed in ways that's very positive and we're trying to actually discourage people from being violent. And maybe one of the really big ones, I think, is just these texts have been used to to justify all sorts of future acts of violence. So the, these violent texts have been used to harm others beyond the texts themselves. And, and that I find that legacy, that troubling legacy is very problematic for the Christian church. Yeah, the historical record is is pretty rough there. I mean, do you mind just giving us a couple examples? Because I think people hear that and they go, I'm sure that's true, but we we don't really learn about that. I mean, if I grew up in Christian education through 12th grade and I didn't learn much about the, the Crusades and, you know, we, we skipped over some of the Manifest Destiny stuff um, because I had some conservative Christian curriculum. Um, what are just uh, some kind of greatest hits of the way that <laughs> – <laughs> or at least great hits, the way that these violent passages have been used in actual Christian history. Yeah, I think maybe that one of the big ones is just to legitimate colonialism. So you think right. about, you know, the colonizers coming across the ocean and uh, wiping out Native Americans, sort of seeing themselves as the as the new Israel and seeing this is the their promised land and seeing the people on the land as Amalekites or as Canaanites. I mean, you hear some of that even in the preaching of the time. So that's sort of chilling to think about people using these texts in that way to do such to commit such atrocities against um, indigenous people groups. So that'd be that'd be a huge one. Um, and just to justify warfare in general, I mean, even whenever another war in our contemporary culture is happening and you talk to Christian folks about it, you often say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, God commanded people to go to war. So, you know, war must not be, you know, unequivocally wrong. It must be okay sometimes. And so they'll use those texts to, to justify, you know, acts of, of real violence and killing and, and devastation. So that, I, I find that to be deeply troubling. Couple things that people don't often really think about. So I think people recognize, hey, it's violent, there's killing, and probably we don't want killing. They don't really think much about the aspect of psychological harm to the soldiers. They don't tend to, th- we, we've sort of talked about it here, we don't have to talk about it more, but they often don't think about the sort of misogyny and sexism involved where women are treated entirely as property. Uh, and, and rape is really not considered rape. But it is by all accounts. And then the third one is they don't really think about the ethnic, uh, the ethnic cleansing slash genocide aspect of this. Can, can you talk a little bit about psychological harm to the soldiers and, and the ethnic cleansing element? Yeah, I think that's a really important point because, I mean, it's, the problem here is not just that people die it's that people kill right. and 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 killing people messes messes up messes you up i mean we see this all the time and people coming back from tours of duty they have this these psychological trauma um they have sort of 
trauma to their own soul. They sometimes have crossed boundaries and borders they thought they would never cross, or they've seen things that have been very uh, disturbing. And so it, 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 it's difficult to, again, imagine how could God command people to commit these acts of violence that are actually going to be harmful not only to others, but also to themselves. So I think that is another layer of the problem that's, that's not often ta- recognized, but is very, very real. And we've seen some examples of genocide in the modern world. We saw it in Rwanda. We saw it in mm-hmm. Bosnia. We saw it, obviously, in the Holocaust um, and the pogroms before that. Uh, one of the things that I'm not sure we're going to get to this as much, so I kind of want to talk about it here, is that there are some ways that people try and get out of this. But really, in the text, the reason for being killed is they live in Canaan. They are of the Canaanite race, essentially. They, we didn't, they didn't think of race the same way 3,500 years ago that we think of it today insofar as they didn't know that there were people that looked so different from them. Their racial ethnic boundaries were, you know, smaller. It's sort of like saying kill all the Washingtonians or something. But, but that is how they thought of it. That was their version of race that we have today. And it's it, Hutu and Tutsi from Rwanda. It's like that. And that is... The dividing line in the text. It's like if someone's not a Canaanite, they don't have to die. Uh, and how do you get around calling that ethnic cleansing, genocide? I mean, I I just I find genocide or ethnic cleansing to be helpful terms. I know some people don't. I think the way people try to work around that sometimes is to think about well motivation. So they're going to say, well, the motivation here is not it's not racially motivated. It's divinely commanded, and it's kind of viewed in a sort of different way. But I mean, I. I just looked up again from a presentation I made before. The United Nations resolution talks about genocide as, you know, acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And when I, I read this, like, well, that kind of seems to hit the nail on the head here for what's happening in Joshua 6 through 11. It's the blueprint of future genocides. I mean, right. it's probably the earliest written decree to commit genocide in the world that we have today anyway. Maybe someone wrote one before, but we don't have it. Yeah, no, I, I find the term useful. Again, I, I, I don't want to get tangled up too much in semantics. So if someone else doesn't find that term helpful and they want to talk about it as a slaughter of the Canaanites, so be it. The, the moral and ethical problems are still are still there. Right, right. It, as if that's the only problem. So one thing, I, I notice how gleeful I'm kind of sounding and we're – and it uh, – I want to address that before we go further. I'm not gleeful here – because I want to see God's character impugned. I'm not, I'm, I'm happy because, uh, this conversation, this in depth of a conversation for me is like 15 years in the making and I'm very happy to be doing it. And I also, uh, I'm, I'm frankly grateful to have a platform to be able to talk about this and, and avoid all of the kind of dancing and tiptoeing and mental gymnastics that I that most conversations about this have been plagued with my entire adult life <laughs> as I've thought through this and that's where some of the glee is I uh, to be clear I don't think God actually committed any of this stuff so I'm I'm not sitting here feeling bad about God I don't think God is like this it's more my, if there's any glee there shouldn't be any glee but it is in the fact of like ah oh, fresh air we can just talk about this and like get past all this crap so I just want to feel like I need to address that because it's not the right voice sound for the topic. Well, I I would just I would 
Well, I think that I think it's very it's validating. I I felt the same way when I was working on this a number of years ago when I first started writing on some of this. It's like when I actually would find a book or a writer who would articulate this as a problem. It's like thank goodness someone right. else it feels the same tension here that I do. Just to actually say that out loud or to see someone else wrestling with it, I found that so helpful because then you can actually begin to deal with it. If you don't name it, then you, you can't really deal with it. So it is very refreshing to be able to have an honest conversation about what's in the text. So moving from glee to gloom, then <laughs> one thing I think that people are pretty reluctant to do when they're thinking through this incident or these any of these incidents of committing these other uh, nations or cities to the ban to to destruction is to imagine that they're there, like that they are an Israelite soldier lifting their sword to kill a child, maybe scanning the battlefield for good looking, recently widowed women, you know, but like imagination isn't even necessary. I mean, so I'd, I'd like to hear what you think about that, but we don't even need to imagine it. Like ISIS does a lot of the same stuff or they did. Now they don't have any land anymore, uh, thankfully. But once they got land, they started doing this. They were defeating various groups of other kinds of Muslims that didn't count for them, taking the women, forcing them into, quote, marriages with ISIS fighters. I mean, this is really similar to what's in the text, isn't it? It, it is, but I think the way these stories are told, they're they're, they're sanitized. So right. again, if it's it's if it's a story of you know Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, it's like isn't this great that God is for Israel, giving Israel a land? Or if it's the killing of all the firstborn Egyptians, it's like isn't this great that God is finally delivering Israel from the the terrible grip of Pharaoh? And so we only look at it from the perspective of the Israelites, and we don't look at it from the perspective of those who are being victimized in the text. So I, I think it's really important to try to put a human face on war to to think about okay, what's happening here? People are dying. That means that. There's fathers who aren't going home at night to their kids, and what are their kids feeling about that? There's there are women who are now widowed and and are going to have a really hard time surviving in a patriarchal culture. I mean, there's just a whole range of these kinds of very human types of things that happen that the text doesn't give often give us much insight into. And so we don't if you don't actually use some intentionality to see it or to imagine it, it's, I think it is sort of easy just to read right over it and not be bothered by it. I mean. Said before, I do think it's I think it's really problematic if we read these texts and and we feel no more regret over, say, the death of a Philistine or an Amalekite than we do over the death of an orc in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I mean, and I do think that's how we often view these. Hey, they're Philistines, they're enemies of God, they're bad, they should be destroyed. And that's as far as it goes. No, no these are these are people created in God's image, uh, people whom God loved. And so they're being killed. Uh, we need to feel compassion and we need to we need to we need to think about what's going on there. You know, I agree with you, but I think it's a very human thing. I don't know if you saw um, this. There was a study that was done about basically people's attitudes toward nuclear war and other kinds of warfare. And specifically, they used Iran at the time because Iran was sort of the the, the bogeyman. And it, Americans, it's something crazy. It, it's something like basically most Americans would approve of saving one American soldier per per thousand Iranian lives or per hundred civilian Iranian lives. And that was like 75%. I mean, I could look up the info. I'll, I'll find a link to this actual article and, and put it in the show notes. But it is, it is stunning, the attitudes. And I think because people do abstract this stuff. They don't, they're not really thinking about 
the suffering woman in Iran. And but it's just it's incredible. Even when you put it in those stark mathematical numbers, people will still say it. What well, they're not they're not us or they're not our military or something. And so I don't I guess I'm I agree with you, but I'm not shocked that people read it that way. Yeah. Well, I guess given that tendency, it's, for me, it's even all the more important not to other yeah. people in the biblical text, because when you when you see them as other in the biblical text and, and expendable, it's so easy then to bring that over into the real into our you know current world. Right. Those two things are maybe more connected than we think. Perhaps yeah. the the way we're reading the Bible is one of the motivations that we could see Iranian civilians that way. That's right. That's chilling to think about, but seems probably true. And then I do want to. I kind of want to get you to say a little bit about the ISIS thing. I mean, I I listened to um, there was a great podcast called Caliphate that New York Times put together. And one of the episodes of that podcast was just some reporting they did on this woman who basically was in one of these groups. There there were these particular sort of ethnic or regional groups where ISIS would come in and defeat them and then wholesale take the women and and marry them, quote, you know, in a whatever their version of a, a Muslim marriage ceremony was. And they were but they were basically sex slaves for the ISIS fighters and this woman uh, her her trauma was you know sort of un, unbelievable unfathomable and mm-hmm. like that, that's looks a lot like the text i mean mm-hmm. and and but we don't do that we don't think about it that way we don't we don't process through the implications we just go well i'm supposed to read the bible this way and so what's important is that i have the right reaction to reading the bible which is always a positive reaction because the bible is god you know basically or something like that yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the assumptions about what the text is and what the text is supposed to do. Right. I, I do wonder sometimes, like if we read some of those, like the story you just referenced, or if we read a story from the Rwandan genocide, and then we read Joshua 6 through 11, sort of side by side together at the same time, if that would actually help us think differently about about these stories. I, I really do think when you begin to see it from like, like, let's look at the view from inside Jericho, or let's read the story of the flood narrative from outside the ark. You know, or look, or you just look at some of the some of the artwork that's been done for some of the like for outside the arc, what that looks like. I mean, you know, that gives you again a whole different picture on the story, and it's still it's part of the story. It's just not the part of the story that the text tends to emphasize. If you've been listening long enough, you know what I'm going to say now. At the mid break of the episode, I talk about the Patreon. And uh, the reason I do that is because, well, I want you to join it, I suppose, is the main reason. But also, it's awesome. Like, the Facebook group has become a real community. Um, that uh, The question that we're answering from Matt later on is, is from that Facebook group interaction. People have been posting, like, really serious, like, life questions and theological questions on there. And everybody's kind of joining in and encouraging each other and giving their two cents and it's been awesome. I mean, I've been away for a couple of weeks at this seminar and I haven't been on there and I've been kind of missing it, like actually missing that interaction with you guys. So that's a big benefit to becoming a patron. Starts at five bucks a month. Uh, you can give more if you want. And if you don't even have five bucks a month, you can email me. You have permission podcast at Gmail. There are scholarships available for people who at this phase of life just cannot give any money. Um, But another benefit you get from the Patreon is these two exclusive patron-only episodes every month. And what I'm going to do now is play some clips from the most recent one. And this is the second in a series of going through individual tracks from David Bazan's album, Curse Your Branches. 
believe it's 2009, his sort of breakup letter with God. Uh, and it's a great record, and there's really interesting theological questions attached to these songs. And this particular one is about the track Hard to Be, track one, maybe my favorite track on the record. And I had this conversation with Sari Martin. She is down at Fuller Seminary. She's an artist and a director and works in their um, science and religion office down there. And uh, we, had a, we had a great chat. So here are some clips from that episode. We should all be satisfied with this magic. It was like, oh, that's so cliche. So you're just, I was like, David, like you're just like one of my friends from youth group who's like, no, I'm going to like do drugs instead or I want to have sex before marriage. So I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> like, so I kind of lumped it into that. Like, oh, that isn't this so cliche, David? Isn't apostasy just so cliche? You know, <laughs> but <laughs> he was saying there is ugliness in this world. Look at it. And there would still be like hints of grace throughout, you know, and he was like the Flannery O'Connor of the indie rock scene, you know, and the fact that he says we were in control of our emotions. That's interesting. Like, that's really interesting, right? It's not like, I don't know, there's not an emphasis on like kind of just pristine perfection, but there's more of like an, an emphasis on intimacy and um, relationality that that he stresses in the beginning. The reason is it's shattering his connection with the people that he used to trust. Yes. A lot. Oh wow. That's so, good. Yeah. And that's I think that's really what the song's about. <laughs> yeah. And the story of the Garden of Eden is the way that the thoughtful Israelites who thought about it explained it to themselves, right? So that's where that story comes from. Like that doesn't mean it's not inspired. I just mean like mm-hmm. anytime Somebody comes up with an origin story. It is an explanatory story. That's what origin stories are. They explain some phenomenon that we experience today. Right. You know, one one phrase people like to use is the already not yet of the kingdom of God. Like in one sense, it's already here. And that's what Jesus says. In another sense, it's not yet here because it's obviously not yet. Right. And we live in the tension of that. And we live in the tension. We live in between. But I think that we tend to think about that as if we know what the not yet is and we just don't know that we just know it's not here yet. Right. But we would totally recognize it if it were here. <laughs> and I think what John Hodd is saying is like maybe we wouldn't recognize it if it were here right. yet. It's really something we cannot imagine yet. Right. And so maybe leaning into the not yet of the already not yet. So if that sounds good to you or if for other reasons you want to be a patron because you just really love this show go to patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron of course there's a link to that in the show notes and now let's get back to my chat with eric about canaanite and other old testament violence okay so now we're going to start to get into the meat of this conversation eric which is basically all the ways that Christian authors have dealt with this stuff. But is there anything else you'd like to say about what makes it problematic before we get into that? Or have we pretty much covered the problems of the text? Yeah, I think we pretty much covered the problems of the text. I think maybe again, just with with these views of God, there's also just a sort of a, what I would call maybe a biblical consistency issue that goes on here because we 
within the text itself, I mean, there's this one passage that says God says, show them no mercy. And then we've got other passages, Israel's core confession that talks about God being merciful. So even like even within the Old Testament itself, it's not even just like a between the Old Testament and New Testament thing, but even within the Old Testament itself, you get these differing views of God. And I, I think that forces readers to make choices and how you're going to how you're going to view God if you want to have some kind of consistent way of talking theologically. So I think that's another pretty significant issue there as well. Yeah, that's good. So you sent me this really helpful article that you published in uh, this journal called Currents in Biblical Research back in 2016. You identified seven ways that scholars have attempted to deal with this problem. But actually, there are more than seven because there are a bunch of subtypes. I count 14 total ways. We are going to go through all 14, at least just spend a couple minutes on each, because it really is a, a kind of a dizzying variety that people have used to think about this. The first uh, main type is called defending God's behavior. And there are five versions of defending God's behavior after which we will address them as a whole. Let's start with the first subtype of defending God's behavior, the just cause approach. What does that mean? Okay, so for the defending God's behavior approach, these are these are attempts to um, look at the text, say, yes, God did these things, and here's why it's okay for God to have done these, these types of activities. So the just cause approach is going to say God was justified in this act of violence. So if it's Canaanite genocide or the slaughter of the Canaanites, they're going to say something like, it was right for God to command Israel to kill Canaanites because they were wicked, and God has the right to judge, punish, even destroy wicked individuals. And so they'll, people refer to passages like Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, or Deuteronomy chapter 9 that talk about the wickedness of the people on the land. And they'll say, again, this is not just God arbitrarily choosing a people to kill, but these are folks that God is judging and is using Israel as a means of that divine judgment. The presupposition in the just cause approach is that we can trust really thoroughly what the text says about those people. And is that going to be something that you're going to have a problem with, that assumption? Uh, it is. Yeah, it's tricky because this, these are texts written by their enemies. <laughs> so right. you do have to wonder if they are portrayed, uh, if they're getting a fair portrayal. And even there are, there are even con- very conservative scholars who would argue Really, the Canaanites were no worse than any other group of people. So why kill the Canaanites and not, you know, all the Hittites or, you know, all the Egyptians or all the, you know, Babylonians? So it's it, it does get a little dicey when you start looking at it through, the, through that lens. Yeah, one thing that's made that harder for me to believe is um, learning more about the Code of Hammurabi. And sometimes apologists will say, hey, this Code of Hammurabi is not as good as the Torah, the you know, the, the law codes of the Torah. But I think a, a more honest approach would say it's not as good in some areas and it's better in other areas. Right. And it and it proceeds by about 500 years. So, right. um, you know, I like, for instance, uh, one of the areas that it is better, there's no um, indefinite slavery in the Code of Hammurabi. But in the Torah, if it's a non-Israelite, you can own that slave for life, like American chattel right. slavery. And so that's one example. But women maybe have some better rights in in Israel than Hammurabi. I mean, it, you know, it's it's kind of a wash. And so to think... Well, is it likely that the Code of Hammurabi represents uh, people who were on par with the Israelites, but at the time of the Canaanite conquest, those people were much worse than uh, Hammurabi and his people? You know, it's like you have to kind of do some gymnastics there. Yeah, and I think I mean maybe the other assumption, too, that's just embedded than just cause approach is that God has the right to kill people. I mm. think a lot of Christians would agree that that is, in fact, true. There are others who would say that's, that's problematic. But that is also sort of an embedded assumption that that's, that is a 
justifiable punishment uh, that God can enact on people. Okay, number two, subtype defending God's behavior, we have the greater good approach. Yeah, so this is sort of a subcategory, I guess, of a subcategory. It's, it's, it falls under the, it falls under the, it's, it's sort of a just cause approach, but more specific. This one says that God is going to engage in some type of activity because there is a greater good, a grander goal that God is trying to achieve. So in this case, the way this is often talked about is, you know, God is going to work through the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the, is the group through whom the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is the one who's going to ultimately save the world. So what could be a greater good than that, right? You've got the savior of the world coming through this group of people. And so for that to happen, you need this this people to be sort of religiously pure. And if you have wicked Canaanites living next door to Israelites, the goodness of the Israelites is not going to wipe off, it's not going to rub off on the Canaanites, but the badness of the Canaanites is going to rub off on the Israelites. And so you need to you need to get rid of these these um, impure Canaanites in order for Israel to, to flourish. Now, the way that people often talk about this, they'll often use a medical analogy. Sort of they'll say, you know, yeah. it's just like a surgeon, you know, will, will amputate a, a limb that's gang has gangrene on it. Um, in the same way, you've got to kind of lop off, you know, this part of uh, Canaan so that Israel can 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 grow and, and, and be pure. That reminds me a lot of the conversation I had with uh, Richard Beck, the psychologist and theologian, about disgust psychology. And one of the interesting things about sort of purity and disgust psychology is that contamination only goes one way in that mm-hmm. form of psychology. Uh, you you don't think that if you surround the scab with a bunch of clean tissue that the cleanness will get onto the scab and make it clean. The scab will touch the clean skin and make clean skin contaminated. And we do have to ask ourselves since that seems to be a really strong feature of, of human psychology that's been empirically tested in the lab, um, and of course we all have our own anecdotes for it, we can imagine it immediately once people give us those examples, are we so sure that's not going on uh, in the writers of the text that, that they are free from that and that it really was a contaminant and that it's not human psychology that makes it seem like a contaminant? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, I think the danger with that this this approach is that you just sort of have an ends justifies the means kind of thing going on here, where you can you know if you say these ends are if the ends are good, then you can almost do whatever you have to do to get to them, and that that becomes like really really problematic. Yeah. Okay. Here's uh, one that might be a bit more plausible. Um, I've certainly seen a few of the versions of this defending God's behavior, progressive revelation. What does that mean? Yeah, progressive revelation is gonna gonna argue that God sort of starts where people are. It's sort of like you can't teach someone calculus before you've taught them how to add and subtract. So God is gonna kind of come down. Sometimes people use the word accommodate or accommodation. God's gonna accommodate people where they are, and where the Israel was was in the world of messy kind of warfare and killing. So God's gonna kind of start there, and then little by little, gradually, God's gonna reveal higher, pure, more noble, more true. Um, ideals for how the people ought to live. And so God begins where they are. And ultimately, you know, once we get to the New Testament, we get Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, and we get to love your enemies. But they're just not ready for that yet in the Old Testament. So God's got to kind of work through um, things they can understand to lead them on to these higher truths. Now, I got to say, I'm uh, somewhat sympathetic, at least to this approach, because if I think about my own life, it's certainly true that God reveals God's self progressively to me as an individual. I'm not ready for certain things at 17 that I may be okay hearing at 35. Um, you know, uh, what, why not think that human societies work that way as well? Well, and again, I think there's, I certainly think there's some, there's some truth to this. I, I mean, as a 
as a Christian believer, I would say that we do see truth more clearly um, with the life and teachings of Jesus than people in the you know in ancient Israel could see because we have more revelation. I'm just not convinced that you can kind of draw this sort of straight line that kind of incrementally shows God revealing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I'm not sure the texts themselves would bear that out. I mean, texts are difficult to, to date. Yeah. But if you can, if you can date them, sort of try to line them up, it just doesn't quite look like that's actually what's going on. Well, yeah. So in the, and there's maybe um, a simpler, like to use Occam's razor to get a simpler explanation of the data you you could say no it's not like like there's a problem here if it's progressive revelation and 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 we're under the umbrella of defending god then we are saying god did command this and he mm-hmm. commanded this because he couldn't have commanded anything better than this so it's kind of like a best of all possible worlds leibniz situation where it's like god has to create the best world possible because god's a perfect being so there the this would have to be arguing the Israelites could not have done any better than this. God couldn't have told them, just let the widows go. <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to do it. God is forced to say, well, you can have sex with them and keep them as additional wives. Basically, God is forced to allow for polygamy because they couldn't possibly have been monogamous. That that seems like a problem. And a simpler solution might just be, well, yeah, progressive re- revelation in the sense that we are able progressively to understand God better over time, that might be true. But then we're going to write the stories back as if God told us to do the thing that we wanted to do. And and so that's maybe a simpler way of, of explaining the data while while still acknowledging that, yeah, we do understand God better through time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd be more comfortable saying from the very beginning, God always wanted us to to love and to love all people, and certainly yeah. and even to love to love our enemies. It's just that we didn't pick up on that. Um, you know, we weren't kind of tuned into the right station, as it were. To right. Think about it that way. That those, in a sense, the radio waves were always out there. We just didn't kind of get it until until a bit later. That's for me much more comfortable in saying God is telling people to do something that's blatantly wrong and evil. And then has to kind of correct that later. That that seems a little clumsy to me. Yeah. I think it's just worth noting that th- this is like a, a, a particular kind of progressive revelation claim. There are other – like, for instance, I think Brian McLaren would use some progressive revelation language, but he would not think that the text was accurate in, in describing the Canaanite conquest. Hmm. So it's, it is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that is not only – uh, proposed by conservative thinkers. There are also liberal thinkers who propose it in, in different kind of ways. But in this instance, it's being used to sort of justify the the behavior as it's written in the text. That's what we should right. be clear about. Yeah. Right. Um, number four of defending God's behavior, it's not as bad as it seems. We, we talked about this a little bit, but what else should we say? Yeah, I'm always a li- I mean, I'm always a little nervous with these approaches because they, they tend to feel so apologetic. I'm trying to make the Put the put the best spin possible on the biblical text. You know, on the other hand, I don't want to don't want to gloss over the fact that there may be there may be things, and there are, certainly are some things I think in the biblical text that do sound a little better than what you might find elsewhere. But I'm just not sure that that really resolves the moral and ethical dilemma that you're faced with. Even if it's a little better, it's still prob quite a bit problematic. Problematic. So I don't. For me, it doesn't. It just doesn't solve. The, it doesn't do enough to solve the problem. Does anybody actually take this approach full throatedly with no other approach? Yeah. It seems in my experience, this is generally combined. This one is like always combined with some of the other ones. If I'm reading a conservative thinker. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And maybe you should say that right up front. Really, for these 
defenses of God's behavior, they tend to use many of them together. They're not just sort of one isolated approach. They tend to bring them all in. I know like um, Christopher Wright has a has a piece in his book, The God I Don't Understand. And um, he has a couple chapters on Canaanite genocide and their or slaughter of the Canaanites as he, as he would talk about it. And he uses like at least four of these approaches kind of all combined together. So I think that's a very, very fair point. Yeah, yeah or an example, uh, John Walton and I think his son, wrote a book, um, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, and they do a, a single move that is a couple of these. They they talk about the um, Hebrew word harem, which is the ban or the destruction, and they talk about, they use medical terminology, which you sort of mentioned, like, this right. is like removing a cancer from the body right. before it spreads. That is both the greater good and just cause, and and it's a little bit, it's not as, then they also do some, it's not as bad as it seems in there as well. That And it doesn't mean that they really necessarily killed everybody. Uh, so they're, they're sort of combining them and they're, but they're different sort of intuitive strains, which is why I'm glad that you sort of separate them out. Right. The last one of the defending God's behavior is, and this is maybe the one that we might be the most uh, kind toward trusting God while acknowledging unanswered questions. Maybe if they only did this one, I would be more into some of the more conservative approaches, but it, they usually get this one. Le- they do all those other four and then they'll end with, and then of course, finite human minds. We just don't, we're not going to get it all. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I'm sympathetic to a certain degree. Like God is certainly, I mean, be transcendent, infinite beyond us. Right. There are things about God that I will never understand. We will never understand. That's certainly true. I, I just, I worry that sometimes we put things in that, category of what we can never understand about God that we actually can understand about God. And this approach, you know, I, I've called this elsewhere the, the divine immunity approach. It's like God is is immune from any any and all criticism. And what, what that tends to do then is it completely stops conversation. It's like, well, God did it. We don't understand why. We know that God is good. We simply have to trust God. And that's all there is to it. And that is just not very satisfying for, again, certainly not for someone outside the faith, and even for many people within the Christian faith. That just is just not helpful enough. So I want to give you a minute to sort of respond to this whole first group, all five of these defending God's behavior uh, sub subgroups. Any, anything you'd like to say about that? Well, there's one thing I would say. I mean, this is not this is ultimately not the approach that I, I take, but I I resonate with those who do in, in insofar as I don't want to posit a violent, vengeful, cruel, nasty God any more than they do. And so they're trying to work at trying to help us think about God's character as good and as just. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think one of the difficulties with this this approach, and this is not often named when people talk about it, is it, it operates on a huge assumption. And that huge assumption is that God actually said and did what the text claims. Yep. And that is like a big boundary around which they are constrained to find an answer. So I think I think if they're going to – I think people who work with this approach have to be upfront about that and articulate that and say, look, this is the parameters within which we're working. Because if, if, you, if you don't agree with that assumption, then there are other options that become available. Yeah, you just uh, stole my one follow-up question that I had <laughs> written down, which was – it seems like this is the only option given a particular approach to the text. Like if you are committed to, for instance, uh, inerrancy of scripture, um, maybe combined with plain sense reading or authorial intention or whatever your metric is for your particular inerrancy, then this is the only game in town. You don't really have a way to say God didn't command it or they got this wrong about God or I mean, that's just not an option. And so, well, these are the five 
pitches I've got, and I'm going to throw these five pitches and hope I can get the batter out. Yeah, it, it's the only option you have if you're if you're wedded to two things. If you're wedded to like, certain views of Scripture, whether it's inerrancy or infallibility, however you want to talk about that, and you're also wedded to the idea that God is fundamentally good. If, the, if you hold those two things together, then I think these defenses are your best option for trying to wrestle with the problem. That's true, and something we don't talk about very often. It's possible that the text is right and that God is not fundamentally good, and then right, the and text is giving I, us evidence for it. Yeah, I think that's one we might get to later because that that would be another that would be sort of another option you could go. But if you want to hold those two things together, I just think this is probably your best uh, hope for trying to resolve the tensions. Yeah. Okay. So the next uh, we have now this kind of middle position. I love how you organize these, by the way. So uh, so clean and mathematical. So uh, it's almost like a continuum. The next position is balancing God's violent behavior with God's other behavior, and this is. This isn't one I hear a lot. You hear this. This is the kind of reason you get a lot in reformed circles as well, because they will talk about, well, God is sovereign, but God's also merciful, but he's also sovereign and he has wrath. And so you got to you have to hold these things either in tension or somehow find a balance. How does that work in regard to these violence passages? Well, I think part of what's helpful about this approach is that it reminds you that, like, the Bible is not just dripping with blood on every page. True, true. There, there is a lot of violence, and I, I've written a couple books, so I'm, I'm certainly aware of that. <laughs> but it's not like it's not like every page has it. And so I, this approach says, look, there, there's more to God than simply violent behavior. And I think this is a this is a point where some people push back against, you know. What we call the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and others, because we people feel like they're just they're just too one sided. They're looking at all these difficult texts, and that's all they talk about. So this this approach says, yeah, there are those difficult, violent texts, but God is doing lots of other things as well. This is a God who is merciful, is a God who is gracious. In this beautiful Hebrew word Chesed, it's a God who is I like to kind of t- call a God stick to usness. This is a God who is loyal and loving, and who who hangs in there with people. You know, in this kind of covenant fidelity, God who forgives sin. So there's all these beautiful images of God that need to kind of be brought into conversation with the other kinds of things God is doing in passages that cause us some distress. Yeah, so I guess maybe this approach might feel more reasonable to someone who is fine with quite a bit of cognitive dissonance. Um, as they deal with God, perhaps they have a, I mean, again, like a, a reformed understanding of their own ability to reason about the text. They might say, hey, I'm just, I have a low opinion of my own ability to form a clear and coherent picture of God because God is so beyond me. They they might find something like this helpful, right? I think that's true. I think they might see like, you know, again, wrath and love sort of can be two sides of the same of the same coin, that these are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, other readers not going to, not going to be able to go that go that route, but some find that find it helpful that these are just different facets of God's character. What is your, this is a, uh, this is a single line item. We don't get a bunch here. So I want to know what your response is to, to this approach. Uh, well, I think it's important. I do think it's important to keep these other, like these other images in mind. I mean, I, I sometimes I'll, even talk about that if we're in a, if I'm in a class where like we're really dealing with these difficult images, I want to say, look, you know, I love God, I love the Bible, I love Jesus, I love church. All right, but we're going to talk about some really hard stuff now. But this, that's not all there is, right? There's there's a lot more, but we're focusing on a very a very select group of passages. So I think this approach reminds us that there are other images as well. Again, for me, those other images don't somehow neutralize. The difficult ones. So it doesn't, for me, become an ultimate solution. It just becomes maybe more of a corrective. If we're going to say, like, we're going to talk about what's in the Old Testament, we got to talk about the whole range of things. You can't just focus on one set of passages to the exclusion of the others. Again, that said, it doesn't 
I don't think it's a, for me an answer to the to the to the moral ambiguities that we get. Yeah, so maybe it's not a solution to the particular problem of these violent passages, but nonetheless, it's a it is a good rule of thumb to keep in mind when trying to get the whole tenor of the biblical right. picture of God, even the Old Testament picture. Yeah, that's yeah, good. I think that's true. Okay, now we've got three versions of the next, which is critiquing God's violent behavior. Um, but before we go into the three. You you note you note something that the the three all have in common that's worth talking about by itself a shared assumption that the Bible does not always get God right. What do we need to know about that shared assumption? So here people are going to say you know maybe the Bible when it depicts God acting or speaking doesn't always reflect what God has actually said or done in historical time and space. And they're willing to say some of these texts simply reflect um, Israel's cultural, historical understanding of who God was, what God was like, and that may not quite be the way God really was. So that's going to, again, have to go back to our conversation of your view of the text. They're going to think about inspiration as God not sort of micromanaging the process, God allowing people to write about God in ways that are not fully accurate because that's how they simply understood God given their their their, their own historical context. Yeah. So uh, the first of these is the reader response approach. And those of you who listeners who remember my conversation with Tom Ord, your friend, Eric, um, about postmodern Christianity, uh, this was a big part of that Terrence Fretheim essay that we based our our, our episode around discussing that Fretheim piece that that Tom had edited. And so reader response is a way of thinking about basically what a text means and um, really bringing the reader in as one crucial element to the meaning of a text. So rather than a text being, it means something no matter what you think or don't think, uh, actually a text does not mean all of what it means until there is a reader responding and bringing the reader's story to the text. Um, I probably haven't done a very good job explaining that. What, what, what else would you like to say about it? Well, with, with the reader response approach, I mean, I think a big part of this is that we as interpreters have sort of ethical, moral responsibility for our interpretation. And so we have to think about, I think sometimes the way it's worded is not just what texts mean, but it's what texts do. Hmm. Um, and that's really important. And so with these passages, I mean, you can analyze a passage and you can at the end of the day say, you know what, I think this passage says slavery is okay. Well, as a as a as a as an ethical interpreter, I would beg to differ with that. So that's part of what reader response does. It actually enters in and it it critiques the text, it interrupts the text. It says, "Wait a minute, though, even though the text is saying this, and that's that, on well, my best analysis, that's why I understand it to be saying that is not good or right or true, and I need to be able to 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 speak to speak that and to say that, lest I perpetuate things that are bad." I feel like there's something more to mine there. Um... So it's not just that uh, in some empirical sense, what I bring will have a a bearing on the meaning. It's also that what I do with the text has a bearing on the meaning of the text. Is that right? Or it's not, I guess I might say it's not just enough to, it's not enough simply to analyze the text. It's not even simply enough to say, I've gotten back to what the original author intended it to mean. I mean, sometimes it's even, it's very hard to do that, but even if you could, even if you could do that and you got to what the original author intended, that might not necessarily represent ultimate truth. You might still say, okay, that's what the, that's what the writer intended, but that's not, that's not true. And here, here are reasons why I would argue against that being true. I I think reader response criticism is always a two way street. Like, so at one level, yes, I'm going to, critique aspects of the text, but there's also aspects of the text that critique me and my own lifestyle, my own values as well. So it's kind of a back and forth. It's not just 
me standing over the text, but it's trying to find some kind of principled approach that lets me evaluate um, what I'm reading. Okay, the next of these critiquing God's violent behavior subtypes is the Christocentric approach. What does that mean? Yeah, there, there have been a number of people who have worked with this um, Christocentric approach, which is sort of a fancy way of talking about a, you know, a Jesus-centered way of interpreting the Bible. And basically what they're – and we all kind of come at this a little bit differently, but those who adopt this approach are going to say that your ultimate standard for evaluating the character of God is the person of Jesus and the God that Jesus reveals. And so you kind of look at the Gospels in particular. You see how Jesus is portrayed there. You see how Jesus talks about God. And then you use that sort of as a almost as a litmus test or a standard by which you can evaluate all the other portrayals of God in the Bible. And those that match up with the God revealed in Jesus, you can say, well, these are accurate. They reflect what God is actually like. And those that don't match up are ones that you can say, these must be culturally conditioned reflections from ancient Israel that don't quite get God right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there are two subtypes of this subtype. There is the Greg Boyd, more conservative subtype, which wants to maintain um, inerrancy or infallibility of some type, even in these passages, which is that like, he would say God wants these passages in the text because he wants Christians to read them through the lens of the cross, and they are there as negative example, but they are there and they're supposed to be there. And then there's the more progressive version of Christocentric reading, which is like, they got it wrong, and we only know they got it wrong because Christ shows us how to get it right. No, I think that's fair. I mean, I mean, Greg Boy has written extensively on this, and and he does have a have a certain view of inspiration, in which he wants to talk about. There's divine intentionality in, in, in having these passages in as part of as part of the Bible. I guess I, I mean, on the other side, there would be folks who would say. Um, Again, God has a much more hands-off approach to the formation of Scripture. I mean, God is certainly in relationship with people, and out of that relationship, texts are created. But God is not sort of, again, exerting huge amounts of divine control over the content um, of the canon. That God simply, you know, Peter Enns talks about God God lets people write stories the way they want to write their stories. And then God sort of uses that and and goes from there. So I do think there's sort of a divide there in how much um, intentionality is is behind these passages being part of the Old Testament. Yeah. And then the uh, third critiquing God's violent behavior subtype, and I I confess I'm probably the least familiar with this of of all the ones uh, of your all 14. This is the feminist approach. I'm I'm guessing this has to do with reading it through the lens of the female characters in the story, which we've been hinting at a little bit. Well, a feminist approach would be, again, really concerned about the patriarchy that just runs through all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and texts that, again, portray women negatively, or sometimes that uh, approve of violence against women, show God behaving violently towards women or using images that are violent towards women, and just really concerned about those kinds of uh, those kinds of images. And so we'll do a number of ways work work at this a number of ways to try to try to uh, combat that or critique that. Can you give me some examples of? I'd like to go a little deeper on this one. Like maybe just if you could give a couple examples from the literature that you reviewed for writing this article. Sure. So, I mean, there will be some like um, Renita Weems has a book um, out where she talks a lot about what's sometimes called the marriage metaphor. So if you think about a book like Hosea, in which you have, you know, uh, Israel's kind of presented as, you know, the female spouse and God is sort of the husband, but God is sort of portrayed as an abusive almost as an abusive husband in those in those first few chapters. Um, and so her approach is to say, you know, when we read texts like that, 
we need to use what she calls a dual hermeneutic, where we can say, you know, some of the stuff is just problematic portrayals of God that need to be set aside. You know, any, any idea of an abusing husband, that that's that's troubling. We, we can't accept that. We need to reject that. But there are still other images in a book like Hosea where we see God as being very loving and very compassionate. And those are things that we can accept. So they try to redeem what they can from the text and set aside what, what they just simply find it would be unusable. And again, feminist scholars have a wide range of different of course, approaches yeah. here. I mean, some some say these texts are just completely irredeemable. You cannot use them at all. They're so problematic. Others say, no, they're still, yeah, they're patriarchal and that's problematic and we've got to name it. But there's still some good things in here that we can learn from them. So there's, gonna, there's quite a range of, of opinion about that. Yeah, or maybe one way of saying it is if we can control for the patriarchy – then we can draw a conclusion from the text that is beneficial. So if we go, well, given that they were had these right. patriarchal assumptions, then what is it saying? And it might be saying something really beautiful. Sure. So that section, the critiquing God's violent behavior, those, those three subtypes, I'd like to just kind of get your sort of group reaction to those approaches. I mean, I would resonate with these approaches quite a bit. I think, I think we absolutely have to critique these portrayals of God where God is uh, behaving violently directly or commanding other people to behave violently. I mean, I worked quite a bit with the Christocentric approach in my own writing. Uh, so I find that to be a really useful way, kind of gives me a principled approach to evaluate these other portrayals. And I think part of the part of the benefit of that is that it, it frees you from the charge of just simply picking and choosing. Uh, because a lot of people say, you know, when you start critiquing biblical texts, well, you're just picking images of God that you like and saying these are right, and you're just throwing out those that you don't like and saying those are wrong. And I'm trying to say, no, I, I actually, I'm actually trying to stand here with, with Jesus and use this as a guide to help me make these determinations. So it's not simply cherry picking. It's not just arbitrary, but there's actually some rhyme and reason as to why interpreters would make these kinds of decisions. Okay, now we have... Uh frankly, an approach that I don't think I understand. You call it accepting and rejecting God's violent behavior. What, what, that sounds like doublespeak. What does that mean? <laughs> right. Well, I, again, I think it's we have to be careful when we look at this. There's such a wide range of divine violence in the Old Testament. We don't want to lump it all together into one category and say, well, either I have to like say, yes, everything the Old Testament says about God behaving violently, God actually did, or reject all of it as saying, no, God didn't do any of it. This is a position that tries to mediate between those two and say, no, we need to be, have more nuance here. Some passages that talk about God engaging in acts of violence do reflect the way that God actually behaves, but not every passage. So there may be some passages that talk about divine violence in ways that we need to say, you know, that, that's, that God doesn't actually do that because that's like just too, too far. It's kind of beyond the pale. And so Terence Fredheim, an Old Testament scholar, has worked with what this distinction he, he makes between the, the textual God and the actual God. So the textual God, of course, being the sort of the literary representation of God in the, in the biblical text and the actual God being the living God, you know, the God to whom our worship is directed. And, and, and he would suggest you can't just draw a straight line between those two which is the way we often kind of grow up in church reading the Bible. Well, I want to know about God. I open the Bible, see what it says about God, and that's what God's like. And he's like, no, yeah, yeah you need a little more nuance than that. Sometimes it, there can be a straight line. Sometimes it can kind of show you something about God, and sometimes it may not show you anything about God at all, and it just depends. So he's, he's really trying to work, I think, with more nuance than a lot of interpreters would with these, with these passages. Now, that's interesting you bring Fredheim into this because, you know, as I mentioned, we, we did that long bit on, on his sort of 
approach to a postmodern reading of the text, especially the Old Testament, uh, Tom and I, and I would have put him in rejecting God's violent behavior. Like you're saying, I just have a kind of a sticking point here. I'm not totally understanding how this is both accepting and rejecting it. Yeah. I mean, Terrence Fretheim, again, from my understanding of his work, he is not willing to say God is not involved in any violence in the world. He is still going to see God as being involved in some some violence. So, I mean, I've got a quote here. He says, uh, God chooses to become involved in violence in order to bring about good purposes, which almost sort of sounds like a greater good type of yeah. approach. So, so he, he's, he is willing to allow for God to be in some way part of the violence that happens in the world. Okay. But I think there'd be other passages where he would say, no, God is not maybe directly singeing this person here in this particular act of violence. So he might, I think he would, and I'm not sure exactly where he would draw that line, but again, it's, it's this sense of yes, some of the violence that, that happens, God is part of, but there's other acts of violence the Old Testament talks about that, you know, no, God didn't do those things. But he gives us a kind of a way to, to figure that out. He gives us a tool, which is to say, look, just the way the text presents God is not, even if you think it's accurate, that's just not the same thing as God, God's self. They're just, right. there's the textual God and there's the real yeah. God. And so it's not ever going to line up. And, and he brings in the reader response theory stuff as well to, to talk about how it's ambiguous as to what the real meaning of a text is. There's a lot of factors that we often don't consider. And so he's giving some wiggle room there, I guess. And, but, but he's not saying, uh, maybe more of an Anabaptist, like pacifist thing, where like we know for a fact that God would never condone or sanction or ask for any violence. God might use violence to, pre- you know, in a utilitarian kind of a way to prevent other violence. Uh, and so he's just kind of giving some space. But it does feel like, I mean, at least the way we're saying it here, it's frustrating a little bit that it's not as clear as most of these other. <laughs> <laughs> answers have been and maybe that's unavoidable just because of of the the language that he uses yeah no i think i i do think he's trying he just doesn't want to lump the whole thing into one category he's not making he's not making absolute kind of claims so no he would not be your strict anabaptist pacifist who's saying violence is always wrong god has no part in violence no he's he he the way he, i think he understands creation the nat- the order of creation he just he sees violence sort of as part of the the created world, and he sees God as somehow as I think being part of that, and even part of human violence that comes out of that. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of violence in the created order. We had an interesting conversation about that called uh, "God Who Suffers." Previous, you have permission with Bethany Solarider about the problems of animal suffering. So, okay, moving on, reinterpreting God's violent behavior symbolically. This is a old school church fathers approach, right? It does. I mean, it, it shares similarities with that. It's not. It's not a strictly allegorical okay. approach. So they're not going to go quite that route. But they. They are going to say, you know, when you read some of these texts, that the that the meaning of these texts is more symbolic, and you, you don't want to take them. You don't want to read them so so literally. That they may they may be using these stories of war and violence, but they're they're really stories that talk about other kinds of things. Whether it's you know obedience to God or faithfulness to God. That those right. that that's that's the real point. And that this is just sort of the backdrop. Um, the setting, as it were, that allows those other themes to kind of emerge. That seems really plausible, more plausible when you consider that these stories were not really finalized until 500 or so years after the events purportedly occurred in the Joshua narrative. And then uh, isn't Abraham and Isaac a good example of what someone might point to to argue for this perspective that like, look, the point of the Abraham and Isaac story is not the murder of Isaac, that God really likes child sacrifice. People assumed child sacrifice back then, and the story is really about 
God's provision and God wanting Abraham to step out in faith. Yeah, I think you could use a story like that, right, and say that that the I mean the meaning or the message that we are to kind of hear from the story or take away from the story is more about this sense of being completely devoted to God, being willing to give up anything for God, not so much about a God who is going to actually command someone to kill their kid. If you take that kind of approach over to the Canaanite stuff, you might say the real meaning here is about separateness. It's about being set aside for Yahweh as opposed to the other gods. Now, those of us with more universalist leanings or sort of interfaith leanings might still have a problem with that. We might still think "Ah, it's still not really what God is like. God's not really so interested in sort of like uh, ritual and religious cultic purity, but that's still much better than uh, he really wanted them to kill all these people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think that, I mean, again, I think that the trick is that I don't know that a lot of people read those texts that way. So I think like that's an interpretive approach. You can try to make that case, but your, I would say your average reader in the, church pew is going to look at these stories and say, what the heck's going on here? Why is God commanding all these people to be wiped out? So I think that makes it a bit of a harder sell to kind of get to that to that level without seeing the the literalness that, that seems to jump off the page initially. Okay, the next, uh, we've got two left here. Thank you for your patience, O oh listener. Protesting God's violent behavior. This is not something I was at all familiar with before you sent the article. What are you talking about here? Right. So this one there, you know, there are some people we, I think we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier that, you know, if you are willing to let go of the God is only good belief and actually say, you know, maybe God is not just only good, but maybe God is both good and bad. Then you might have an approach like this where you say, hey, look, when I look at the text, the text reflects exactly what God is like. And sometimes it's a good God. Sometimes it's a bad God. Sometimes God is merciful. Sometimes God is merciless. And, um, you know, you don't have to like it. You don't have to necessarily, you know, agree that that's the best way God should be. But you you, you simply have to say, this is a God with whom we have to deal. You can protest it if you want. You can say, look, God, I don't think you should be doing this. I don't think you should be like this. I don't like when you behave this way. But at the end of the day, that's who God is. Um, so this does not line up with any kind of classic theism where God is all all knowing, all, all benevolent. I mean, all that stuff. This is some different it, view of God. It it does not. Yeah, it really lets go of the God is fully, completely, totally good, and it says, yeah, God is sometimes good and God is sometimes not, because that's what the text shows us. So it's a, in a sense, it's, a, it's trying to. It, they're trying to do a very honest reading of the text. Just like let's look at it like it is. Hmm. If this looks like God's behaving badly. God is, and that's what God's like. And you know, again, you can you can make a you can raise your you can raise a protest against that. Say, God, you shouldn't. I wish you weren't like this. I wish you behaved better, and I wish you would stop doing some of these things. But at the end of the day, that's just who God is. That is very interesting approach. Wow, I have not really come across anything like that in uh, my own reading and conversation. Okay, and we've got we have one final one, which I can't believe is even an approach celebrating God's violent behavior. Uh, what? Well, again, you know, there's a couple ways to think about this, that, you know, God's violent behavior can be seen as a way of stopping um, further acts of violence. It can be seen as a way of rescuing people who are in bondage. So those can be seen as good ends. But it can also be viewed as, you know, isn't it great that God is violent so that I don't have to be? Oh, interesting. For, for, for some people, for even for some pacifists, they would say, this is why I can be a pacifist. This is why I don't engage in violence, because, you know, we say, you know, vengeance is the Lord's. And so I, I'm going to trust that God is going to settle the scores. Therefore, I don't have to. And in fact, I'm not supposed to, because that's not my role. That's God's role. And so in that sense, 
there's a certain celebration or appreciation of the fact that that God behaves violently because it's it's a sense of God setting things right, God doing justice. That is really interesting. I have never thought about it that way before, but that, I guess that makes sense. That that's a, there's a little bit of that in some of the liberation theology tradition, right? Where like it 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 does sometimes to me sound like some ends justify the means type stuff, but uh, I've heard it said, you know, hey, coming from like the African Christian American perspective for God to, you know, use violence to bring about something just when there was slavery beforehand. Sounds pretty good to me. And of course, I can't fault that perspective coming from that life experience. I mean, is it is it related to that in your mind? I think there would be some of that. Sure. Anyone who's uh, people who have been marginalized, people who are on the fringes, people who are being oppressed. There is certainly an understandable desire to want a God who is going to deliver them by any and all means possible. And so yeah. there's something, I think, in which people resonate with that. They want a God who is powerful and strong and even able to do some violence if that's what's necessary to, to free them from their, from their current situation. So thinking back on all these approaches, there is an overall divide here, right? It seems to come down to basically how conservative or how liberal one is. And, and to one's commitment to reading the text in a certain way. Do you, do you find a sort of a dividing line as well? I mean, I, again, I do think it just keeps coming back to view of Scripture. It's hard to get, a, it's hard to get away from that right. one. I think, you know, how, how involved you think God was in the process of forming Scripture and how involved you think God was in determining the content of Scripture really does determine which of these options you're going to feel more comfortable with um, than others. How do you not have, or how does someone not have decision anxiety? I mean, 14 <laughs> options, and a lot of them are definitely mutually incompatible. I mean, if I'm just playing the numbers, I'm like, well, whatever one I land on, I have a 7% chance of being right. That's not very encouraging. Well, again, keeping in mind that some of these are like kind of grouped together and yeah, they sure. sort of, they, they work together. So it's not quite maybe as bad as, as, as it may sound. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in class, we talk about this in in class. I I like to put up on the board a you know a, a continuum or a spectrum, and I write you know different. I can write some different views of of scripture, for example, or even some of these different views. And we just talk about you know where people where people come out. And I think I think it actually helps people to know that Christians have thought about this in lots of different ways because oh, some totally. folks some folks are just I mean they're just. They're very soundly in the defending God's behavior camp, and they—that's where they are. They're not—they're not ready to venture out too far. But other people who are really troubled by this, who have heard those arguments that, and that those arguments don't work, they're so relieved to find like, oh, there's another way to think about this. I don't have to necessarily believe God did these things, and so for them, it can be really helpful. Um, so I think having the range out there is, is is quite useful for people to to sort of dive into. And, and you know, for some people, this is a so I would call front burner issue. Like they need to figure this one out because it's sort of a make or break kind of faith issue. Other folks like, yeah, I haven't really thought about that much. Doesn't really matter. They kind of put on the back burner. They've got other things that, that they're, they're working at and that's okay too. You know, I think it's, I think people are different places, but I think it's good to be aware of the range of options. I think it's good to be aware of the range of problems that these texts cause. Um, and then to think you know seriously about what you're going to do and how you're going to handle them. Yeah. I, I completely resonate with everything you just said. You just described me when I was the age of your students. I mean, I, it was a front burner issue for me and I needed to know that there were other options. I basically got those other options one at a time through reading certain writers or listening to somebody. But of course I agree with you. And that's why I have this podcast. And that's why we went through all 14 is because, uh, I find that giving people the range of, uh, Christian options is the best first step. And then people yeah. can kind of find their way. And also 
I think it uh, promotes intellectual humility, the fact that there are 14 options. Even if there are subparts, there's at least five or six really sure. discrete approaches here. Uh, and you're not going to actually solve it. I mean, you're not going to know that you're right. Uh, these are all internally coherent. You know, they are things that people have believed and do believe. And that's probably as good as you're going to get. You're going to get to one that meshes with your other beliefs, your experience of God, your experience in your Christian community, you know, and the like. No, I think that's, I think that's true. I think these are the kinds of things that you do take back and you talk to, you know, people that you've got trusted pastors, trusted friends, and you sort of try to hash it out and look at the evidence. I think getting people into the biblical text and like really seeing what's there kind of pushes the issue, it forces the issue a little bit. And so I think when you, you're, if you're going to expose people that and really kind of, in a sense, force them to look at the text and ask questions like, how do you feel about the way God behaves in this passage? It's good to then also give them some options as to how Christians have tried to resolve some of those tensions. Okay, so Eric, I've got three questions left. This, the second of the three is going to be us getting your view. But before okay. we get your view, I'm curious if you could give us some of those options that you don't 100% buy into, but you think they're on to something. And you, you've done this a little bit as we've gone um, gone along, but like, what are some of the approaches that a, a thinking and prayerful Christian could quite reasonably hold that aren't quite the view that you hold. Yeah, I mean, I think I would probably go back to um, progressive revelation. We talked about that a bit earlier, where I do think um, there certainly is a sense in which we who stand on this side of the cross and the resurrection um, can understand some things about the character of God in ways that just really wasn't possible for ancient Israelites. I mean, we have seen God uh, walk among us, and so you get a clearer revelation there than you than you had before. So I think that one's really, uh, really helpful. I mean, I, again, we talked a bit about this too. I, I think the whole idea of balancing out these portrayals is is really helpful. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of turn God into, you know, Jesus meek and mild the way sometimes it's portrayed. I, so I do think there's something important about these images that there are that God has boundaries, that there is a sense of right and wrong, and that it's not just anything goes. And so, even though I will say, I mean, I don't think God is judges people through. Um, extermination or execution, I do think God has a clear sense of there are things that are right to do and there are things that are wrong. I do think God wants us to be committed to to God. And, and so those things are, are are important. And I think some of those, those texts can, can remind us of that. So what's your view, Eric? And then I'm going to try and I'm, with your help, I'm going to place myself, but I, you've actually brought up a bunch of stuff that I haven't thought about before. So it's going to be difficult, but let's get your view on the violent behavior of God in the Old Testament, what do you think is the best approach of all of these approaches? Well, I, I really think it's important to take the you know, take the historical and cultural context of the text seriously. And so, I you know when you look around the ancient world at the time these texts were written, I mean everyone viewed God or the gods as being involved in war, wars and warfare. They initiated them, they started them, they fought in them. And so, it makes sense to me that that that's just the air that Israel breathed. That they would have actually thought about God in those same types of ways. Um, I'm not committed to um, viewing the biblical text as having to accurately reflect um, God in every passage. So I certainly think some of these are these again cultural reflections that Israel has, and so that leaves me then with you know how do I you know, how do I figure out which ones reflect what God's like and which ones don't? And for me, the the Christocentric approach is the is the best. Um, I kind of work on a couple big assumptions. I, I assume that Jesus most fully and clearly reveals God's moral character. And I also assume that God's moral character does not change through time, that God is not, you know, merciful at one point in time and right. malicious at another. 
So if I hold those two things together, and then I have to sort of ask, well, what kind of God does Jesus reveal? And I see uh, Jesus revealing a God who's kind to the wicked. I mean, it sort of says as much in the Gospel of Luke, a God who is nonviolent, a God who doesn't judge people with natural disasters or physical infirmities in the here and now, a God who is a God fundamentally of love. And so if that is the God that Jesus reveals, and if that is the clearest portrayal of God's moral character, and if God has always been like that, then that, again, for me, becomes a standard by which I can use to go both backward and forward in the Bible to see how other portrayals of God match up to that. And those that match up, I say these reflect God's character. Those that don't match up, I say these reflect more of a cultural understanding of who God is. So that's where I, I come out. So I, you know, to put a fine point on where we started with Canaanite genocide, I would say, no, I don't think God ever commanded Canaanite genocide. I don't think God commands genocide. I don't think genocide is ever justifiable or ever good. I don't think God commands people to kill you know, babies or to kill civilians or to kill women and those kinds of things. So I re I realized that like, I have a question. I feel like there might be one more approach. Maybe it's not in the literature or maybe you would subsume it under something else. But before we get to my own answer to this, what about dispensationalism? You know, that that's the idea as I understand it, that like God deals with people differently at different times. Um, dispensationalists point to the two, two covenants as being really big, you know, so uh, did you, have you come across yeah. anyone saying, yeah, God is totally right to do this. God can do whatever God wants. He only did it then. That's why he doesn't do it now. That's why it's wrong for ISIS yep. to do it now, but it wasn't wrong then. Yeah, and I I'd probably put that under the defending God's behavior category. Yeah. And I would talk about that as like, um, you know, theocracy, this whole idea that, you know, in the past, God is viewed as sort of, you know, working with one particular political entity, the nation of Israel. And when God works with one political entity, they've got borders that need to be defended and they have land they need to live on. But God doesn't work that way anymore because Christian faith is not about one political group, right? It's not America, it's not Germany, it's not Brazil. It's, it's we're, we're global, we're a national. So it's, we're in a different phase now than we were back then. So some people will go that route and find that really helpful. I mean, yeah, except that people who are dispensationalists are like, I think anecdotally, the most likely to believe that God is working with one political <laughs> entity, the United States of America, or maybe and the nation of Israel or something like that. I mean, well, well, there certainly are strong strains of that. That's true. Although I don't know that every, I wouldn't want to say every dispensationalist would. would no, would, I just mean like people who are really into like the state of Israel after 1948, they, they tend to have some dispensational thing in their right. theology. And so, and those people tend to be very America, American centric. And, and so probably it seems not necessarily the theologians, but maybe just the rank and file are maybe that that's one of the more disturbing ways that these that that kind of stuff is used for militarism and um, right. I don't know, just in, increasing sadness. So I, I'm sorry for that little interlude. I just I didn't want to go without that one. Your answer uh, I found very compelling. I think my answer is probably similar to yours, but maybe you can help me. So I want to start with the text and then you can help place myself, help me place myself in, in all these approaches. I think that probably what's going on with texts in general is that human beings have a real interaction with God, who is real, and then God gives them quite a bit of freedom, apparently, in talking and writing about it and coming up with stories and metaphors. I think something decisive happened in Jesus. I don't know exactly how universal that decisive thing is, meaning truly universal, like other planets our planet only? Uh, does it invalidate the religious experience of people in other faiths? I think probably doesn't invalidate them, but probably sheds light on them, you know, something like that. And so that's kind of my approach to the text. So I'm definitely not expecting it to get God right. 
Uh, like, you know, yeah, Pete N says, God lets God's children tell the story. That seems right to me. Uh, it seems to explain the data the best anyway. And so I think that, yeah, God, God never wants anyone to kill a child, uh, including Isaac. God never wants anybody to take war widows. Uh, God never wanted women to be treated as property, and yet they are in the Ten Commandments. So I, I've got to have quite a bit of room, I guess, with my commitments that, yeah, I, I share your commitment of God mm-hmm. is not changing. Uh, and so that's what made me think of the dispensationalism, by the way, was you saying that. And so where does that place me? In your schema, uh, it sounds pretty close to where I would place myself. Yeah, I guess, I guess we are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much you would. I mean, if you're going to use Jesus quite the same way, maybe that I would. Maybe you do in terms of a, kind of a standard to judge other passages. No, but I, I, think I do that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You certainly, you certainly see the humanness of the text. Yeah, and I, I mean, for me, that's that's what drives my own view of. of Scripture. It's looking at the evidence of the text in front of me, and it just doesn't look like a text that has been created with a huge divine control. You would expect yeah. some different kinds of things to be happening if that were the case. So, yep. Oh, that's a conversation I want to have so badly, and maybe I just need to write something about it or interview someone. But like, I want to have the conversation. If the text were inerrant, what is the evidence we would expect to find, and do we find that evidence? Of course, people will have varying intuitions on that. But I just feel like we just totally don't find that evidence, and so it's something else. Um, well, I think I think I think there'd be a lot more y- unity to the text. Now, again, people are going to argue there is a lot of unity yep. to the text, but I guess I tend to see a lot more diversity within the text. Yeah, I mean, me and that, and it makes sense given the fact that the scriptures are written over a thousand year period and from lots of different places and people, and yeah. it, so it's going to have a lot of diversity. Maybe like going to a library and picking out books from the last thousand years and looking at them, and they'd be a, there'd be a lot of different ideas in those books. Um, so I, I find that to be a pretty compelling argument that you've got a lot of human fingerprints on the text. Yeah, I do as well. So this is kind of how I'd like to wrap up. And we're back to the text and inerrancy and all this stuff. Something that jumped out to me while I was preparing for the episode. I hope it is clear to everybody how prepared I was. Um, I'm kidding. But uh, you're clear in your article, Eric, that what people think they're allowed to do with the Bible will have a huge impact. And we've talked about this as well in the conversation. But in my own story, it struck me that it really went the opposite way. It was when I started thinking seriously and reading and trying to figure out what to do with these passages that I eventually came to the conclusion that the text is not inerrant. Like if this is the kind of mental gymnastics required of me to, to hold on to inerrancy, I'm done with it. I'm, and now that I understand that there are other options, I'm going to go with those other options. And I just think that's interesting. I don't know if you've encountered that. It's just kind of, it's funny that this was the thing for me that actually changed the way I viewed the text rather than what I think of the text uh, will determine. And it, of course, it does determine what I think I can do with these passages. No, I, I do think, again, it's when you actually begin to look at the text and actually read the text thoughtfully, critically, and I use critically in the best sense of the word there, that's when these kinds of questions em- emerge. I think for most, for many Christians, that just doesn't often happen because the text is mediated through the church and the church tends to sanitize it. So they're not really reading it. And so when you get to the point where you give them like four passages, tough passages, say, I want you to read these passages. I want you to think, talk about how you feel about God's behavior. And then they see it for the first time. Like, wow, I heard this in Sunday school, but I never saw it this way. 
that's when the very kinds of questions that you're raising, I think, begin to come up. And you then start to think about what is the Bible differently than maybe the way you've always been taught. Because we're always told it's perfect, it's completely trustworthy, and we don't think much beyond that. And when we can begin to look at it, it's like, well... Um, there's certainly parts of it that are trustworthy. There's certainly parts of it that are accurate. There's certainly parts of it that I would say this is truth of the capital T, but there are lots of other parts that look very human and that are things that we need to actually be critiquing and not simply embracing. I guess I just want to give you one opportunity to just say around this topic, you know, the show is called You Have Permission. If someone's feeling like they don't know what the, if they have permission to sort of go down this road, what is a succinct way of saying you do have permission? You have permission to do X. Your permission to, to, to blank. Yeah, I, I guess I would say God is pleased with your with your questions and with your wrestling. That's that's actually part of faith. That that and we have examples in Scripture of, of people of faith who have wrestled and struggled. That that's a good thing. That's not, that's not a bad thing. And so I would not run away from that, but I would actually dive into that. I think that shows that you take your faith, you take Scripture really seriously by the way that you engage it. So you have permission to do that and you can see through these all these options that Christians have done that for a long time and, and will continue to do this um, going forward. This is not a conversation that is going to be settled uh, tomorrow and people will continue to, to struggle and wrestle with it and, and discuss it. So, um, so dive in and, and join in. Dr. Seibert, thank you so much for your time today. What a fantastic conversation. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Man, that was a lot. I hope it was helpful to you guys. I loved having that conversation. I just thought it really uh, brought, uh, shed a lot of light on various ways to approach this very difficult question. And now we're going to answer this listener question uh, submitted through the Facebook group. What do you think of the whole hashtag empty the pews movement? This is from Matt. So this is an interesting question and an interesting sort of movement. Movement might be a strong word for it. It really is just a hashtag, but it represents a very real phenomenon. So let me give a little bit of background. The hashtag was started in August 2017 by self-identified ex-evangelical Chris Stoop, who today goes by Chrissy Stoop, as a way to publicly broadcast individual people's decision to leave the evangelical church, especially in light of that movement's support of Donald Trump, but also over bigotry and intolerance in general. Now, my wife made the funny observation that most evangelical churches don't actually have pews, but they have like comfortable padded chairs with pockets on the back. Uh, It's mostly mainline churches that have actual pews, at least on the West Coast. Anyway, uh, one difficulty in answering this question is figuring out where Empty the Pews ends and the founder of the hashtag, Chrissy Stoop, begins. I'm going to mostly stay away from commenting on Chrissy or her ongoing public work and persona and try and stick mostly to the hashtag itself. I will say one thing. I don't know a ton about her, but a recent tweet of hers uh, using the Empty the Pews hashtag said that she's happy to hear about Joshua Harris's divorce. He is the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye and the poster boy of the purity culture movement. Now, it's if it's true that in some sense Harris is Chrissy's enemy, uh, which she would probably say so, then in my mind she ought to love him, not rejoice at his suffering. 
And anyway, just because one person's marriage doesn't last, that does not mean that they have nothing meaningful or true to say about marriage. It's kind of like getting mad at Al Gore for flying in a private jet if he believes so strongly in climate change. It's just like a, it's a logical fallacy, basically. And I say that while also agreeing with Chrissy, probably more or less on a broad critique of purity culture as being unhelpful at best and quite harmful in many cases. So I don't know. I just, you know, I'm not going to go follow her and become an acolyte. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Empty the Pews doesn't have something to say. So just like I am criticizing her for criticizing Josh Harris or, you know, uh, for that logical fallacy argument, I won't make the same thing about her Empty the Pews movement. I'll, I'm going to treat that by itself. So there are obviously um, so many unhealthy feelings, beliefs, group behaviors, group think tendencies, etc. in certain evangelical communities and many people, myself included, have been legitimately hurt as a result of those things. I don't think that anyone should stay in any abusive situation for, quote, spiritual reasons. If it's abusive, get some distance. I found a blog post by someone else who has left her evangelical community and gave some reasons why she does support the Empty the Pews movement. Uh, among the reasons uh, that seemed to me to be quite good reasons that she mentioned, less cognitive dissonance, less weird disaster expectation related to the rapture. I really related to that one. And for her own story, the receding of suicidal thoughts. So look, for some people, their communities really are that toxic and they got to go. But if we generalize across the entire population, we also find really great stuff in evangelicalism. People are happier, they give more money to charity, they spend more time volunteering, they have more robust social fabric and community, I could go on. Social cohesion for a group often comes at a cost for some individuals who don't remain in the group. That was true in pre-60s cultural revolution America, for instance. In the 50s, we had great social cohesion, but not a great time to be black or female or indigenous or whatever. So if you need to leave for your own health, then you need to. And of course, I would never judge that. But let's get our bearings here. There are, there are two separate reasons people might empty the pews in this particular way, according to this movement. Number one is the evangelical church's support of Trump. And number two is more general bigotry and intolerance. I think especially around sort of LGBTQ issues and maybe female ordination, although a lot of evangelical evangelical churches do ordain women like Vineyard and Foursquare and stuff like that. So regarding the latter, bigotry and intolerance in general, my answer here is pretty much the same as what came across in the episode about staying in your church or denomination with uh, Dr. Trisha Bruce, which is to say, you might need to leave if you have some hurt, but oftentimes staying can actually increase your voice within the institution to affect the kind of change you want to see. If you think that evangelicalism in general is a completely lost cause, maybe something like the Southern Confederacy during the Civil War, then I guess you probably should leave. But am I convinced that it's that bad? I'm definitely not convinced it's that bad. Uh, many of my all-time favorite podcast guests identify as evangelicals and or attend evangelical churches. So should you leave just because you disagree? That's a judgment call. Um, to the first reason, support of Trump. 
this is an interesting argument, but it seems to lack some nuance. If your individual church is preaching the Trump gospel from the pulpit, then voting with your feet, removing your tithe dollars might be a really good idea, especially if you can make it clear to the church leadership, this is why I'm leaving in a loving way. Now, that assumes that you don't have some other good reasons to stay, though, like perhaps your kids really enjoy the church and you know that the Sunday school teachers are using good curriculum or you have great relationships with your small group or the church is involved in some excellent work with the poor in your neighborhood. You get the point. We're often choosing amongst competing goods. And I don't think that this hashtag movement does a great job of capturing that nuance. Then again, do any hashtag campaigns capture nuance? I don't know. Maybe Twitter is the problem or at least a big part of the problem. Now, here's another thing about it that I think is interesting to say that, well, hey, evangelical churches in general are supporting Trump and major national evangelical voices like Jerry Falwell Jr., Robert Jeffress, Franklin Graham, they are all supporting Trump vocally. Therefore, if your church identifies as evangelical, you should leave. That's a harder case, I think, to make. I know plenty of evangelical pastors, either who identify that way or ordained in traditions that use the word evangelical in the name of the denomination. There, Plenty of these guys are embarrassed by this broader movement. They've never supported Trump from their pulpit. What do we make of that? Are we really going to punish individual churches within a network, quote unquote, that has no central authority anyway, over the fact of a cultural movement that has arguably hijacked a perfectly good theological distinction, evangelical Christian as opposed to mainline or Catholic or something like that, and then turned that into a socio-political culture war badge of membership. That seems hasty. Andy, my Calvary Chapel buddy who's been on the show for some of these science episodes and whatnot, I don't think that like people should leave his church because Jerry Falwell supports Trump. He doesn't support Trump. You know what I'm saying? So, and then there's this, the point from earlier still applies here. Mathematically, if people are leaving, and people are leaving the evangelical church for sure, and you stay, then by staying, your voice gets amplified. Especially if you're young and young people are leaving, the young people who stay are going to be listened to, all things being equal, by the older leadership. That seems to matter to me as well. So I guess this is sort of my final position. If you're being hurt, then please leave and make sure the leadership knows why you're leaving. If your church in particular has turned itself fully or partially into an organ of the Trump train culture war, then you might want to leave and vote with your feet and tithe dollars. And again, I would recommend clearly communicating to that if you do. Uh, But if your church just sort of happens to be evangelical, you're not being hurt, your pastor is not preaching the Trump gospel from the pulpit, then I don't think you even really need to bother thinking about emptying the pews. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. Uh, But I say, carry on, love God, love your neighbor, and keep bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth. Thank you, Matt, for that question. And a huge thank you to Scott Sanjemi for editing my conversation with Eric today. That was quite a marathon. In the show notes, I've got a link to Eric's book, The Violence of Scripture, as well as that uh, nuclear war taboo article that I mentioned in my conversation with him. You can join the Patreon for five bucks a month. 
patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com click become a patron this show is meant to be a resource please share it with people and let me know how those conversations go you have permission podcast at gmail.com and you can really email me anything stuff you want to hear tell me your faith story tell me what's going on i love getting feedback and often it makes the show much better for me to know what you guys are going through um i appreciate your guys's understanding as we go down to episodes every other week i really think that's going to be the best long-term decision it's going to keep the show going indefinitely and yeah just i'm so grateful uh and thanks to fuller for bringing me down for that theo psych seminar there'll be more about that in coming episodes and we'll see you guys in a couple weeks (laughs) 